and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi. It's it's still guest Oh, yeah. We should do the song. Do you want me to do the song? Okay, right, ready? <clears throat> One, two, three. Guest-tember! What a I never expect. I never remember to expect that at the end. Of I did it. that to Steve uh, the other day. No, he did. I did it to him today in the car, and he almost ran off the road. <laughs> we should probably put like a disclaimer on these episodes or something. But there's really strong trumpet sound coming from Lauren. <laughs> so you are here in our fourth week of guest timber. I hope you've been enjoying it. Yes, we sure have. Oh yeah, it's, it's been-, been a lot of fun talking to other people and learning more about stuff we didn't know. And also, it's a little less work for us. Oh, <laughs> frankly, so much less research. It's actually, it's pleasant. This podcast, for the first time in a long time, it's been a pleasant experience. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love it. We love you guys. So yeah, this time it's it's double, double the fun, I guess. Sure, like double mint gum. Uh, I guess that's where I, I don't know. Yeah, we have That's two fun. guests today. Two guests today. One, two. Joining us by Skype, we have Kat Thompson and Jill Martinuk. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Misinformation. <laughs> We're so happy you're joining us. We are very happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Of course. Oh, our pleasure. Um, do you want to tell um, our listeners a little bit about yourselves? Sure, Kat. You want to go first? Uh, sure, I'll go first. Um, hi, my name is Kat. I am in Richmond, Virginia. Um, we finally had a break in the heat. Yes! Woo! It's been awesome this week, especially today. Um, I am coming to you from the library that I work at. I'm not working right now, but um, I am a librarian. I also work for the state health department. Um, and I, like Jill, have a PhD in Russian, which is how we kind of came to this topic. Um, so I look forward to telling you guys a little bit more about the women that we're talking about today. Oh, cool. I'm Great. excited. And hi, I'm Jill Martinuk. I am in Florida. We have no break from the heat ever. <laughs> I think it's like, yeah, it's 91 right now. Oh, my God. Much hotter than that. We have wonderful humidity here. Mm. Um, I am an instructor at the University of South Florida. So even though my degree is in Russian, I teach in the English department. Oh, ironic. Yes. <laughs> Probably easier, though. I mean, yeah, I mean, um, I imagine so. But I mean, Russian, I've always thought it was a very difficult language, but I'm sure you both would be able to disabuse me of that notion or or reinforce <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Um, I still get to teach literature and I do sneak some Russian in there. Perfect. You know, in English, but I still yeah, make yeah. them read some Russian literature. That's great. Awesome. That's well, awesome. thanks so much for joining us. So, uh, what uh, we we were very excited when you when you proposed this topic. So, if you could tell us and tell our listeners, what is your topic today? Yeah. So the title that I came up with uh, for this episode was "Badass Russian Women and the Men Who Feared Them: A Vengeance Tale in Three Parts." That is <laughs> so good. <laughs> I'm so glad we poured some wine for ourselves. Oh. I feel like I'm going to go on a journey. Yeah. Time to sit back and <laughs> sit back and relax. Yes. All right. Take it away, ladies. Lay it on us. All right. So I'm going to start us off. Um, part the first is going to be St. Olga of Kiev. For our first badass 
Russian woman, we're going all the way back to another millennium, starting in the 10th century, in fact, in pre-Christian Russia, which was then known as Rus. It got the name Rus from the Viking tribe named the Varangian Rus. These guys landed on modern-day Russian shores in the mid-850s, demanded tribute in exchange for governance, and were rebuffed by pagan tribes who basically said, no thanks, we can govern ourselves quite nicely, thank you very much. <laughs> After those tribes fought amongst themselves for a few years, they realized that maybe self-governance wasn't really for them, so they went back to the Varangian Rus who had tried to conquer them and said, hey, our land's really rich and full of stuff that you guys probably want. What do you say you send a prince over to rule us? And you can have some of that stuff. So they were basically like, please, uh, we were wrong. Conquer us. Please (laughs) come back. Yes. And the Rus said, that sounds great, but let us do you a solid and send three of our best guys to rule over your land because things have to always happen in threes in Russian culture, which is what they then did. Um, So the guy that they sent to what was then uh, and still is Novgorod, Fun fact, Novgorod is one of the oldest cities in Russia, and its name means new city. Um, (laughs) Irony. This guy's, yeah. (laughs) Oh, so much irony. (laughs) This guy's name was Rurik, and his district became known as Rus, which the rest of the pagan land eventually co-opted. In what were totally not suspicious circumstances at all, the other two guys that the Rus sent over died within a couple of years of the three's collective arrival. So... Rurik assumed sole responsibility of the entire bountiful and giant land known as Rus and made Novgorod its capital. Totally normal. Absolutely. Nothing to see here, guys. <laughs> Move along. Move right along. So Rurik had this son, Igor, and Rurik ruled for about 17 years before he died. And when he died, Igor was like, sweet, my turn. I get to rule. And Rurik was like, mm, no, not so much. My like third cousin, Oleg, I'm going to give control of the country to him. And Igor was like, what the heck? <laughs> I'm the next in line. Yeah. But that turned out to be a smart move because Oleg was much more successful than Igor could have ever dreamed of being. Mm-hmm. Um, Oleg moved the capital of Rus from Novgorod down to Kiev. And after he had a really long, prosperous, and successful reign, he was bitten in the foot by a snake, and he died in 912. Man. Which, <laughs> the thing about snakes. <laughs> yeah. There's this thing about snakes and rulers in Russia. I don't know. Anyway, at that point, Igor finally assumed what he thought was his rightful place on the throne as the ruler of Rus. Where Oleg was a smart, capable, and generally well-liked guy, Igor was a dumb, inept, and widely disliked dude who in no way could live up to either Rurik's or Oleg's examples of what a good ruler should be. Hmm. This is why none of his subjects were very surprised or even all that sad when he was killed by the Derevlians, who were a branch of Scythians, who had it out for Igor and repeatedly waged campaigns against him. In 945, after ignoring a plethora of warnings from basically everyone and their mother that the Derevlians were going to show up on his front door one night and kill him, Igor found himself on the wrong end of a state funeral. And in 945, <laughs> our heroine Olga took over as ruler and embarked on her, you killed my husband, prepare to die, tour. <laughs> Everybody has four-letter names. They're all just rearrangements of the same six letters. <laughs> six I letters, think. I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like there, there are 33 letters in the Russian alphabet, but like really, honestly, only like eight of them are usable and everything else is just like spitting on the person that you're talking to. <laughs> Just very percussive consonants. Yes. Yeah. They roll right off the tongue. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Olga. Mm -hmm. Oh, Olga. 
Olga was Igor's widow, and she had been watching all of this with a big old smirk on her face because she knew it was only a matter of time before Igor did something stupid like ignoring warring- warnings about ending up dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, because of the unreliability of the various narrators that wrote the histories of pagan and early Christian Russia, we don't know a whole lot about Olga's early life, which kind of stinks because she was only introduced as a human being with agency when her husband assumed the throne. Mm, We also have no idea what someone as clever and farsighted as Olga was doing married to a dud like Igor, because there's no written record of how either of them felt about one another. However, we do know that she at least was upset enough about his death to wage war upon an entire tribe of would-be invaders. Russian literature loves its women scorned, so after her husband died, Olga gave readers what they didn't even know they wanted and undertook an epic campaign that can only be described as one of the best long cons you've probably never heard about. Oh, I'm so excited for this. (laughs) It's like my third favorite category of anything is a long con. It's true. It's true. Yes. And the the level of deception just, it gets... It gets so much worse. So like when Jill and I were learning about her in our graduate medieval Russian literature course, our professor introduced her as saying, she's worse than your mafia boss. Like, <laughs> like punching down conspiratorially. Like hers is a brutal story. And we're like, look at that. <laughs> we love it. So most of uh, what I'm talking about here comes from um, Serge Zankowski's seminal um what was it? Medi- uh, Medieval Russia's Epics, Chronicles, and Tales. The version we read was published in like 1971, but it still remains one of the best summaries of the Russian primary chronicle and all that good stuff. So if anybody wants to look that up and read this in its full gory detail, I highly recommend it. Ooh, okay. Is it like 900 pages thick? It's a little <laughs> thick, but you can kind of pick and choose. Like there's a whole bunch in the middle that you can just forget about. All the good stuff with Olga happens at the beginning. So. It's like the Bible. Yeah. Can oh, pick yeah. and choose. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> like, if you wanted, sure. You can pick and choose. You know what? We'll leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Exactly like the Bible. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but the pro- the problem with these chronicles is that because the narrators are so unreliable, you know, she gets portrayed as this bloodthirsty, sword wielding ball of violence, and then all of a sudden, you know, she kills a whole lot of people, and then suddenly she's like going to church every Sunday, mm-hmm. holy sainted woman. So there's a whole thing that happened in between, and we're like, we don't know what happened. <laughs> kind of know a little bit of what happened, but even I'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so after she killed all those people and showed up under the name Helen, then she just kind of drops out. And we're like, okay, well, then what happened? But anyway. Hmm. Okay, so back to the whole unreliable narrator thing. We have no idea how she got from point A of going stabby stabby to point B of going all pray-y pray in church. Hmm. Um, it's like if she actually was a mafia boss. It's as if her ghost was kind of hovering over the people writing those early chronicles and saying, you thought what I did to those Strevlians was bad? See what happens if you write about what I did. Mm. Go ahead. I dare you. Hey, you. You like to swim with the fishes? (laughs) (laughs) That was very good. Um, but the good news, the good news is that what Olga did do to those Strevlians is a delicious revenge story, and we've made you wait long enough to hear about it. So without further ado, here we go. The quick and dirty version of Olga's revenge tour is that she dealt with the Derevlians first by dropping a literal boatload of them in a moat, then burning a bunch more in a bathhouse, 
then getting even more of them drunk at a feast and killing them, and then finishing the rest of them off by sending a flock of burning birds after them. <gasps> burning birds? Did, <laughs> did you say burning birds? Like yes. birds of flame. Like the birds were on fire. Yes, she was so mad with these people that she lit birds on fire to spite them. That is so, that is so metal. Oh, that's so metal. <laughs> that's so fucking righteous. I love that so much. <laughs> so, it's so tight. It's sick, as the kids say. <laughs> is, are we back at sick now? Yeah, we're back we at were sick. We were using sick, sick in like 1994. My cousin's best friend, her name is Bean, nickname. She's 17. She called my earrings sick. So, and you know that was good because she's a teen. Yeah, but you know that was good. Yeah, because they were my knife earrings. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> Flaming birds of death. Sick. Yes. Sick. They are sick. <laughs> Please yes. continue, Kat. But first, but first, the boat. All right. So, this is the slightly less quick and dirty version. First, after the Derevlians killed Igor, they decided to go to Kiev and capture Olga and her son, Sviatoslav. They wanted to give Olga to their own prince, aptly named Mel. And I always think of Mel Reynolds whenever I read this story. But in the movie version, he gets played by him. But here, probably not so much. (laughs) So they wanted to give her to Mel and then, quote, force their will upon Sviatoslav, who was next in line to be the ruler of Russia. I don't know what that means. Thankfully, we don't find out. Because Mel sent 20 of his best men to Kiev by boat. And Olga was watching them arrive from her castle atop the hill overlooking the valley where they arrived, went down and met them with a very warm and gracious welcome. When she asked them what they were doing there, they said that the Derevlian tribe had done her a favor by killing her husband, Igor, whom they characterized as a crafty wolf who was no good for her, and that she should leave Kiev and go with them to marry their prince, Mel, whom they characterized as an all-around good guy who only had Olga's best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. Men are always that way, no, especially in the, in, the, in the first millennium. <laughs> Classic. But Olga was smart enough to figure this out. So she said, sure, you know what? Igor is dead. He ain't coming back, so why not? But first, let me give you guys a proper Russian feast. Tomorrow, why don't you guys come back here? Same time, same place. But for now, go hang out in your boat. Have a nice evening to yourselves. Maybe have a little wine. Do whatever. My people are going to come get you tomorrow. They're going to ask you if you want to go on horseback, go on foot. You're going to say, no, no, we want to stay in our boat. And you should definitely carry us up to the palace. And the 20 men said, sweet, we don't even have to row our boat up to the palace. We get a free feast also? We're in. Mel's going to be so pumped when he hears how smart we were to agree to this. (laughs) Oh, boy. So the next day, Olga's minions go to summon the Derevlians, and they stick to the script saying, nope, don't want to go on horseback, don't want to go on foot. We want you to carry us in our boat. So I'm sorry. So they're in a boat, and the guys just Mm kind of go, and pick it up. And then, like, carry it, like, like canoe like you're style. you're crowd surfing. Yeah, like you're crowd surfing <laughs> to the castle. I, I imagine it as, like, there are little pegs on the side or something. That makes more sense. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, you. I guess they could have kind of hoisted it like a casket. I get they were used to doing this kind of stuff, because oh. in the Chronicle, they, like, kind of roll their eyes and sigh, like, oh, God, this again. <laughs> but... <laughs> So this was common practice, it seems. Fairly common. Yeah, she, she was used to getting her people to do crazy things like this. Sure. Um, which yeah. is why they didn't ask questions when she would ask, you know, she would tell them to do stuff like this. And they're all like, oh, fine. You've got something up your sleeve. Whatever. <laughs> Bless them. So they pick up their boat and they go to the palace. And the Kiev, like, 
you know, her minions basically bring the boat in and then drop it down. And she says, hi guys. And they start waving back to her. And then she nods to her minions and they pick the boat back up and then they drop it into a trench that she's dug surrounding the palace. And then they start shoveling dirt over them to bury them alive. Oh my God. <laughs> she's really good at revenge. That's so good. Are you taking notes? <sighs> this, we should be taking I don't notes have a, about this. I don't have a moat yet. I know. Well, you know, not yet. <laughs> that's amazing. And yeah, there's so more? That's, oh, that's all the one directly in zero. Just wait. Because <laughs> our woman was just getting warmed up. Oh, my God. So after this, she sent a messenger to the Derevlians, telling them that if they really, truly, seriously wanted to talk to her about going to marry Prince Mao, they needed to send their best men and not bother with 20 trifling idiots who couldn't smell a boat trap from a mile away. (laughs) (laughs) But because social media wasn't yet a thing and nobody was blowing up Twitter with hashtag down with the Derevlians, Mm -hmm. Mao's best governors got together and set off for Kiev, thinking they were about to score a serious diplomatic coup. Once Once they arrived... She welcomed them warmly and said, hey, we've got a bath ready for you guys. Why don't you go freshen up after your long journey? And when you're done, we can talk. Uh-oh. Quick side note. Um, this is not your typical bathtub full of water and bubbles and candles and lavender oil and a glass of wine. Mm. Um, bathing in Russian culture has always, almost always meant men spending up to an entire day socializing in a steamy bathhouse, plates of snacks and gallons of vodka. And then they turn the heat up and they get really hot. And then they go outside and jump into a really cold body of water. Oh, yeah. The Scandinavians do this. Like mm-hmm. the, yep, the Finnish and the Swedish, I think. I read a lot of mm-hmm. Swedish crime fiction, and that seems to be like a, usually a plot point at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're in a bathhouse, you're getting murdered. Yeah. Yeah. It's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're conducting important business. Exactly. Um, but yeah, and then they run, they run back in, they beat each other with, bir- with birch twigs, and then the whole thing starts over. Um, you know, this is really common in Russian movies and Russian literature. And, you know, they, they have like segregated baths today, one for the men, one for the women, that kind of thing. Um, and if you ever visit Russia, like go to a bathhouse. It's some of the most fun you'll ever have in a really hot room with a lot of other naked people. You get to beat them with birch branches. It is yes. so much fun. <laughs> Sounds relaxing. It right? actually is. Like it feels, it feels really good when you're done because you kind of sustain this state of like drunken hot, cold euphoria, and somehow it just works. Huh. They figured it out. They figured out something we didn't. (laughs) But you know who didn't figure out something? (laughs) The Dreblians. Great. The Dreblians, yes. Oh, you're seeing a theme here. (laughs) So anyway, Malzman were all, oh, sweet, free night at the bath. This is awesome. You know, because they either didn't know about their compatriots who got dropped in a moat, or they didn't care. Mm. So into the nice warm bathhouse they went. Olga's men shut the doors and lit the place on fire from the inside. Oh my god! <laughs> Olga two directly in zero. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, so at this point. Olga apparently had had her fill of greeting Derevlian dipshits at her palace, and I imagine the cleaning bill was getting to be a thing by this point, so she yeah. sent another message to Mal saying, okay, look, this time I'm going to come see you, because I've decided it's time for me to come grieve my dead husband in the place where you guys killed him and buried him. Could you do a widow's salad and make a whole bunch of mead so that we can have a proper funerary feast? And the Derevlian said, yes, you had us a mead, so they gathered a whole bunch of honey and got to work. Olga breezed into town with a little retinue, uh, which that word retinue always makes me think of Woland and his retinue from the master and Margarita. Oh, 
And this is exactly what I picture, like her just kind of rolling into town with like a black cat uh, <laughs> lurking somewhere nearby. That's it. Just her, her and her cat. Yep. So she went to Igor's tomb to grieve him. And while she was weeping her widowy tears at his grave, she had her retinue scurry off to build a giant mound and wait for her command. Again, asking them to do weird shit, they just comply. That's the way it should be. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> I could get a lot more done if I had just a bunch of minions who would just do what I asked. With no question. With no question. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just wait for that nod. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as, as soon as she felt better and a little less grievy, she told the Derevlians that she could use a drink and that they should start feasting like now. So they did. And the mead was flowing. And eventually one of the Derevlians piped up and asked Olga where her retinue was. She... Kind of just nonchalantly said, oh, they're just hanging outside. They're not really one for feasts anyway. No big deal. And uh, hey, who wants some more meat? While she's just tossing her glass bag over her shoulder. Watching and waiting and waiting and watching. <laughs> so when the Derevlians had reached what she deemed a sufficient state of sousedness, she gave her retinue the your time to shine is now cue. And they ran and started the stabby stabby stampede. Oh my God. My source on this says that Olga, quote, went about herself egging on her retinue to the massacre of the Derevlians. So they cut down 5,000 of them. But Olga returned to Kiev and prepared an army to attack the survivors. So that's Olga 3, Derevlians, negative 5,000. So she made sure everybody got super wasted Mm -hmm. and then brought in her crew and killed them. And not only had them, was like, go to town, but she was also like, yeah, get him! (laughs) Basically. Yeah, stab! <laughs> I love this woman. She has the like, cold I, black heart that I admire so greatly. <laughs> I just like when when I was reading this to my fiance, he was like, "So this is the red wedding part." I'm like, "Yeah, without the wedding and maybe a little bit more mead, and I don't know how much red, but <laughs> yeah, I bet there was a lot of red." Oh Ugh. my god, <laughs> better than the me. <laughs> yeah. So when she took off to go back to Kiev to get. The army, uh, some of the Derevlians were dumb enough to follow her. So she had gathered her army together and she prepared to meet the Derevlians who'd followed her. So like in front of this army, they're like battle, line, like front line to front line. And she has her son Sviatoslav and she sticks him on top of a horse. She hands him a spear and she says, all right, honey, remember what mommy taught you about what we do to the bad men with the spear? Oh my god! He's still like six at this point. Oh, he so- doesn't know what to do with the spear. <laughs> yeah, he's a kid. I was expecting him to be like twenty-two, but no, he is a he is a baby. kindergartner. He's no, a kindergartner. He literally, a child holding a spear, so he throws it at the ground because he's like, I don't actually know what to do with this, mom. <laughs> We're not there yet because you've been off burning people in bathhouses. Uh, yeah. So. Sviatoslav accidentally chucked the spear at the ground in front of his horse. And the Derevlian saw this and went, oh, isn't that cute? Baby doesn't know what to do with the spear. But one of Olga's army commanders said, no, you know what? Throwing a spear at the ground, declaration of battle. We are going to fight. Mm. The Derevlian said, nah, nope, we're done. We're out. So they turned tail, ran back to their houses. They shut the doors, stuck their fingers in their ears, pretended they couldn't hear anyone, taunting them (laughs) a second, third, or fourth time. Olga was still spoiling for a fight, so she decided to pay a visit to the exact spot in the, in the exact city where Igor was killed, and for once, she finally encountered some Derevlians who knew what was up. They barricaded themselves inside their homes and fought her off, because they pretty quickly figured out why she was there and why she was mad, and how painful their death was going to be if they let her take the city. Yeah, yep. 
You want to guess how long Olga stayed there trying to get them to surrender? <laughs> Ooh. Uh, longer than a day? <laughs> uh, okay. Three months. Oh, that's a good guess. <gasps> More. Uh, uh, six, six months. <gasps> More. A year. Yes, a year. She stayed there an entire year. <laughs> she just like crossed her arms and sat outside all their houses and she was like, like gave them the stink eye. Like, I got nothing to lose. I could stay for here. For an entire year. For a whole year. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And Sviatoslav is back in camp like, hey mom, I want to eat at some point. Like, what's up? <laughs> I graduated from kindergarten and you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to talk to my therapist about this. Thanks, oh, Mom. Yeah. yeah, that kid definitely needed some therapy, <laughs> like, yeah. from day one. Imagine yeah. his bring, bring your child to work day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the spear thing, I think, was. Yeah. <laughs> you failed. You're cut. <laughs> You're failed. You're not coming with Mommy when she stays, when she <laughs> outweights her enemies outside their houses. Yeah, well, the problem was they actually wouldn't surrender. And she said, all right, look, like, why are, you know, why are you guys holding out when literally everyone around you is dead or has run away or knows better than to mess with me? And they said, you know, we would love to surrender to you, too, but this is where your husband died. We know what you do. We know you're still out for revenge. We actually would rather starve to death than have you be in charge of us for what is the rest of what is sure to be our very short and miserable lives. Mm Mm-hmm. So Olga sighed the deep sigh and said, look, I've already avenged Igor's death three times. Russian culture, three times. I'm done. Okay. But I'd still like some tribute from you guys. So when you give me some and I feel like we've made peace, I'll take my kid, my army, and I'll go back to Kiev and leave you alone. Do you want to guess? Uh, is this the flaming bird part? <laughs> is this the flaming bird part? Because that yes, really stuck I'm, in my brain. I'm teeing you up for the flaming bird part because the Derevlians were smart enough. Or sorry, they were smarter than their neighbors, but they were not smart enough to understand that she was 10,000% lying through her teeth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, when and she one never took her sleeve. Yeah. Yeah. So they agreed to this and they said, sure, we'll give you honey and fur. How did that sound? Totally not looking around to make sure they had enough honey and fur to give to her. She called their bluff and said, you don't have enough either. You don't have enough of either of those things. But tell you what, my husband took a crap ton of tribute from you guys. I myself have already taken enough from you guys. I'm feeling generous, so I'll settle for some birds. Oh, yeah. How about three pigeons and three sparrows from each household sent to me? We'll call it even. Deal? Dreveline said, deal. Didn't even stop to wonder why this woman who had killed thousands and thousands of people and waited an entire year to try to flush out this last remaining part of their tribe was suddenly willing to accept a tribute of six birds from each household. Oh, no. So they said, sure thing. We're right on this. Sent the birds along with some nice greetings. She accepted the birds, told them to go back to their homes and relax, enjoy happy, fun family time. Took her birds, went back to Kiev. The end. And all lived happily ever after. (laughs) Oh, Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> we know better at this yeah, point. Yeah, no, we know better. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not quite what happened. Because as soon as the Derevlians turned and went back to their homes, Olga handed a bird to each one of her soldiers, told them to attach a thread to each bird that carried a match bound up in some cloth. When night fell, Olga told them to let the birds go. So the birds went back to their households, where they nestled in their nests and eaves and dovecoats and did all the cute bird movements that might rub a match against the cloth and set everything around it on fire. Unfortunately, this does include the birds themselves, which is the slightly less fun aspect of this story. Oh, birdies. 
But wow. not surprisingly, anyone who wasn't burned in their homes ran out of them to try to escape. But Olga had sent her soldiers to catch them and then round up the city elders. By this point, she may have actually been tired of all that murdering because she only killed some of those captives while giving another few of them as slaves to her retinue and sparing another few to live out their lives paying tribute to her. In sum, though, our final score is Olga 4, the Derevlians, <laughs> negative, everything. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? You're at home. You've given some birds. You're like, finally, our long year is over. <laughs> Go to sleep, children. Milos, <laughs> Milos, finally, bring out the wine. The horrible Olga, she is leaving us alone. And then suddenly your roof is on fire. <laughs> and then everyone is dead. Because some birds were rubbing up against a match. They had itchy butts. Yeah, they had itchy butts. That's genius. She's a badass. Now, now, if you remember from the very beginning, Kat told us that this is Saint Olga of Kiev. <laughs> so it seems like we're not done with her yet. Is she this, the pa- is she the patron saint of revenge? revenge? <laughs> if she's not officially, then she definitely should be. Yeah. yeah. So then we skip ahead some number of years after. She leaves the land of the Derevlians, having laid waste to them completely. She went back to Kiev with Sviatoslav, lived there for a year. And then sometime in the 950s, we're not sure when, she decided she was going to convert to Christianity. But the problem is no one can agree on where, when, or even how she was baptized. Mm. Um, Some say that she went to Constantinople to be baptized by the emperor Constantine himself. And others say that she stayed in Kiev and was baptized in 955 and then spent the next 10 years building churches all over Russia. But... In any event, in 965, Sviatoslav took over as ruler of Russia. <laughs> I love this part so much. In 968, Turkic nomads from Central Asia invaded Kiev. Olga uh-huh. holed herself up in her palace with her grandsons, and they endured all sorts of suffering as the nomads spent about a year trying to take the city. After he drove the nomads out of Kiev, Sviatoslav decided he was going to ditch Kiev and move to a city on the Danube that had all sorts of riches and goodies that he could enjoy. Like a good Russian mother, Olga gave him an epic guilt trip and said, hey, I'm an old lady. I'm going to die soon. Why are you leaving me? Do you not love me anymore? <laughs> we don't we don't know quite what he said, but we can probably assume it was something along the lines of, uh, yeah, actually, sorry, Ma, I'm out of here. So she said, fine, do what you want. But first, promise me that you'll bury me before you take off, you ingrate. So he agreed. Three days later, she died. Wow and was mourned deeply by her ingrate son and the rest of the Russian people. After all of that, the thing that finally ended Olga was her son moving out. (laughs) Just goes to show you that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Exactly. Oh, my God. That's crazy. I love her. I want a T-shirt with her on it. The four vengeances of of, of St. Olga. I love it. Olga. Olga Ware. Yeah, Olga Ware. Oh, so hot right now. <laughs> Angry misandrist feminism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, that was very good. Thank you, Kat. You're welcome. Um, just a little bit of a fun fact. We kind of wrote this as a transition from Olga to Catherine. Um, one of the aspects of her Derevlian Revenge Tour trademark is that it's parts mirror pagan Russian funerary rites which makes a good amount of sense when you consider that Russian folk beliefs place a lot of weight on female spirits who could really ruin your day if you cross them. Um, 
One of these is the Rusalka or the water sprite. She was kind of a Russian pagan version of a mermaid or a siren. She lived at the bottom of a body of water and would lure men towards her. And then once they got close enough, she would wrap them up in her long hair, drag them off into the water and drown them. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Russian men were supposed to know that a woman with long free flowing hair was bad news because the, the pure and chaste unwed ladies would have braids. Oh, they see that. Yeah. They have it all contained. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And if you were, you know, loose and free flowing, that meant that you were bad news, but that didn't stop them from being, being tempted by those spirits. Absolutely. Yeah. If yeah. you see a theme here of Russian women knowing better than the men they're surrounded by, <laughs> <laughs> you're on the right track because we have got the queen of showing up the mansplainers coming for you in part two. <laughs> Catherine the Great. Yes. All right. So our next Russian badass woman is Catherine the Great. We think she's one of the most interesting figures in Russian history because there is so much controversy around her. Like a lot of Russia's leaders, she's a really complex figure who did a lot to advance the country while also doing some flat out horrible things. First thing to know about Catherine the Great is that her birth name was not Catherine, nor was it Yekaterina, the Russian version of Catherine. She was born so I'm gonna butcher this. She was born Sophie Friedrich August von Anhalt Zerbst on April 21st, 1729, in Stettin, Prussia, to parents who were minor nobility. Her mother had ties to the Russian royal family and arranged for Sophie to marry Peter III, who was heir to the Russian throne. Peter, like Sophie, was not actually born in Russia, but was brought there at the age of 11 by his aunt, the Empress Elizabeth I, after both of his parents died. She decreed that Peter would be her heir to the throne. They married in 1745 when Peter was 17, and Sophie, who took the name Yekaterina after her conversion to Russian Orthodoxy, was 16. As you might imagine, when two teenagers who don't know each other are forced to get married, Catherine and Peter did not have a happy marriage. <laughs> That's too bad. Shocker. <laughs> there are many conflicting accounts of their marriage out there and what's to blame for its oral, for its horrible state. And I'll get into that more in a minute. What we do know is that they really did not like each other almost from the instant they met. Both were having affairs while they were married, but Catherine's are slightly more famous because she had three children with Peter. Mm. Ooh. Uh-oh. But she strongly hinted that none of the children were his. This obviously did not help the relationship between the couple, nor did it help Peter's reputation in the Royal court. Oh no. Yeah. To be cuckolded like that? <laughs> no. Yeah, he, he gets a real bad rap because some sources say that he was mentally incompetent and Catherine herself referred to him as an idiot among many other colorful things in her writings. <laughs> a lot of the older accounts of him portray him as this bumbling fool who preferred to keep company with his German relatives rather than rule Russia. Even the Encyclopedia Britannica shows him little mercy, calling him, quote, Extremely neurotic, rebellious, obstinate, perhaps impotent, nearly alcoholic, and most seriously, a fanatical worshiper of Frederick II of Prussia, the foe of the Empress Elizabeth. <laughs> he sounds like wow. a he sounds like a real dud. Yeah, our favorite was one account that called him a hater of everything Russian. <laughs> oh, yeah, Ooh, the Russians don't like that. I'm imagining an Augustus Gloop character. That's how I'm yes. imagining him. Yeah, sounds about right. There has been an effort in the past few decades to reevaluate Peter's legacy. Historians Alexander Sergeyevich Milnikov and Carol Leonard have used the old adage that history is written by the victors to point out that Peter in his brief six months as, as Tsar 
actually had some progressive ideas such as religious freedom and getting rid of the secret police, but of course never really got a chance to put any of those ideas into extended practice because he only ruled for those six months before being brutally murdered. Jeez. You got to watch your back. Keep your head on a swivel, especially if you're a Russian nobility. Oh, just wait until you hear who murdered him. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. Religious freedom would have been something that definitely would have been pissed off the very powerful Russian Orthodox Church and turned a large portion of the population against Peter because he made no secret of the fact that he really did not like Russia. Oh, yep. He didn't follow a lot of the common practices associated with Orthodoxy. He refused to fast on fasting days, reportedly laughed during church services. Oh, oh my God. So you can imagine how that would have been viewed by the leaders of the church who had a lot of political sway in that time period. In contrast, Catherine started learning Russian when she moved to the country and was baptized in the church. Mm. In general, she was seen as being more Russian than her husband, who did not keep to Russian customs and was obvious in his disdain for them. Mm. So, on July 9th, 1762, Catherine, with the help of her lover, Count Grigory Orlov, and an army of supporters, led a coup against her husband. Oh, no. (laughs) Upon its success, she was ordained by members of the Russian Orthodox Church as Empress of Russia, which shows their support of her rather than Peter, who was the rightful ruler. Peter was arrested and forced to sign a letter of abdication, which solidified Catherine's legitimacy as ruler. However, that did not save him because on July 17th, 1762, he was assassinated by Alexei Orlov, the brother of Catherine's lover. Hmm. Convenient. Hmm. Very convenient. She was coronated on September 22nd of that same year, and the Imperial Royal Crown of Russia was created for the event. If you've seen the meme going around online of Quentin Tarantino looking at a crown in Russia a few weeks ago, it's that crown. Oh, hey, that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So thus began Catherine's 30-year reign of Russia. Just a quick note before we talk about Catherine as empress. Um, One of the things that she's famous for is her affairs. Mm. She never married again after Peter and chose instead to have a string of relationships. The historian Emin Longinov has suggested that she had a list of 15 favorite men from 1753 to 1796. Her three most famous partners are Grigory Orlov, Grigory Patsyomkin, and Stanislav Panatowski the king of Poland. Oh, there were only six names back then. Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Grigori, Grigori, and Stanislaw. It's a law firm. (laughs) 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 The moral is, it's all your fault and you're going to die anyway. Yeah, exactly. Stanislaw comes up a little bit later when we talk about what she did to Poland. Um, Anyway, Catherine was known for being very generous with the men she had relationships with. The men associated with her often became her advisors on government issues. She rewarded them financially and gifted them with land, serfs, and estates. However, this did not mean that she suffered fools in the name of love. Her main goals were to stay in power for as long as possible and be seen as an equal to Peter the Great. She had no problem dismissing her lovers in the name of power. For example, even though Grigori Orlov played an instrumental role in the coup, he didn't actually have any political prowess. Catherine realized this and just stopped listening to him. <laughs> Been there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, Catherine as Empress. As an Empress, she is most famous for her wide ranging domestic policies. Um, but aside from that, she receives a lot of credit for her unflagging focus on foreign policy, even as she was preoccupied with matters closer to home. 
She considered expansion to be one of the central duties of a monarch and scored a major coup with her expansion of Russia's borders by over 200,000 square miles with a focus on Poland and Turkey in the south and west to complement Peter's conquest of the Swedish in the north. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. Adding all of those lands also meant adding millions of subjects to her crown and really propelled Russia into major player status on the European stage. Her expansions took place over two short periods of time. From 1768 to 1774, she took aim at Turkey for the first time and also partitioned Poland for the first time in 1772. From 1787 to 1795, she took aim at Turkey for the second time, dallied with a little skirmish in Sweden, and partitioned Poland two more times. Jeez, busy girl. Yeah. In the first Turkic War, she sent General Peter Rumansiov by land and her friend Alexei Orlov by sea to claim Russia's natural southern boundary and reclaim lands lost to Asiatic invaders way back in August time. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Rumiansev's army scored impressive victories in Bessarabia and the Balkans, and an army under a different general also scored big in taking Crimea. Orlov's navy sank the Ottoman navy in the Bay of Chesme. Side note, there is a delightfully absurd church in the southern area of Moscow dedicated to this victory at the Battle of Chesme. It's formally called the Chesme Church, but almost everyone calls it some variation of the Candy Cane Church because it's pink and white with these like white vertical stripes that are these string cornices that they drew together with figured horizontal fascias. It's amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah, we'll definitely have to post a link or something to that. Yeah, like it's it's like a 45 minute trip outside of like Moscow proper, but it is totally worth it because you come up around a corner onto it and you're just like, (gasps) (laughs) that's amazing. Which one of these is not like the other. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, Orlov didn't try to force the Straits at that point, but kind of waited around for Turkey to surrender. And in 1774, Turkey agreed to the Treaty of Kuchuk Kainarji, which gave Russia the strategic points of Kinburn, Yenikal, and Kerch in and near Crimea, as well as part of the Black Sea coast west and east of the peninsula, reaching almost to the Caucasus Mountains. Russia was also given rights to navigate commercially in Turkish waters and to build an Orthodox church in Constantinople. Relations with Turkey were mostly okay until 1787 when Turkey said, hey, Russia, get out of Crimea. Also, get out of the shores along the Northern Black Sea. Russia said, eh, thanks, but no thanks. We want those too. So Turkey declared war. Turkey had the backing of Great Britain and Sweden while Russia had Austria's support. This second Turkish war was confined to land action with Russia's side led by the brilliant general Alexander Suvorov, who scored some major victories such as storming the impregnable fortress of Ismail and marching on Constantinople. By the war's end in 1792, the Treaty of Jassy gave Russia the Black Sea shore all the way up to the Dniester River, and perhaps more importantly, Turkey recognized Russia's annexation of Crimea. Thus, Catherine solved what was called the Turkish problem. Oh, <laughs> which sounds like a um, weird math thing. It does. Like one of those, what is it? The unsolvable problems? Oh, yeah, yeah. In I math. F- I forgot what they're the called. The Turkish problem. The Turkish you problem. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's also. <laughs> Wait. Wait. I have a joke. That's also what happened in season one of Downton Abbey. They helped solve the Turkish problem when they got rid of that guy's body. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> This joke is six years old. All right, proceed. Spoiler alert, everybody. The joke was legend. Wait for it. Exactly. So in addition to the Turkish problem, there was also the Polish problem. This also took a few tries to solve and was arguably a greater accomplishment for Catherine because it was an important European state populated with a lot of civilized people. 
as opposed to Turkey, which was at the time a largely unsettled swath of empty steppe land. But because love is pain, Highness, Catherine's land grab lust led to a lot of big headaches and constant conflict between Russia and Europe, who understandably weren't too keen on her plan to divide up one of their countries. So Poland had a lot of problems itself at this point. You're telling me. (laughs) 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 It was already weakened in the late 1700s due to a decentralization of power and its king, our friend Sviatoslav, faced not only a complicated political and social situation at home, but also constant and irritating threats from his neighbors on all three sides. Hmm. Given enough time, Poland might have been able to reform itself, riding off the heels of the intellectual and cultural revolution that took place there in the early 1700s, but all three of its neighbors saw the weaknesses developing and decided to move in for the kill. That king that we were just talking about, uh, Stanislav Poniatowski, again, one of Catherine's former lovers, he tried to introduce certain reforms, couldn't garner support from anybody, mm-hmm. and he ended up facing protests that led to a nasty civil war. Oh, a group of his nobles and other landed gentry split off to try to form a confederation to keep the Russians from encroaching, but they failed, and Poland was partitioned for the first time in 1772. Russia gained most of Poland's eastern border from Riga in the north down to Kiev in the south, not far from Minsk in the center. In 1793, Russia annexed part of Lithuania and most of Western Ukraine, including what eventually became Belarus in the second partition. And in 1795, it annexed the rest of Lithuania and Ukraine in the third partition. One important thing to note about Catherine's land grab lust is that it is generally seen among historians as the work of a great liberator, whereas the Prussians and the Austrians' efforts are seen as the work of great oppressors. Mm Mm-hmm. This is because Catherine targeted old Russian lands that were once part of Kiev and Rus and populated mostly by Orthodox Ukrainians and white Russians. The people, not the drink. Not the drink. Oh, I was going to say. So you know delicious. what? That would have been a more appropriate beverage for us to have during this recording oh, session. Right. We didn't plan ahead. No, we did. We were not prepared. No, I'm sorry. You had no way of knowing. It's okay. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So the Prussians and Austrians targeted lands that were ethnically and historically Polish. At the time, some said Catherine should have done more to prevent Prussia and Austria from expanding at the expense of the Poles, but she just kind of shrugged and said, I don't really care yeah. about them. I just want the power and the glory and the prestige, so can it already. Catherine did also have some foreign policy interests in Sweden and France. Even though Russia and Sweden fought a lot, they did agree on the necessity of armed neutrality at sea, and some of their policies were eventually codified into international maritime law. She was also not best pleased with the French Revolution and broke off relations with France in 1793 after Louis XVI was executed. This was a slightly uncharacteristic move for someone who had tried so hard to establish a cultural climate in her own country, similar to that of the enlightened Europeans, but it may be that she was nervous that her own subjects might get some ideas and try to spark another rebellion. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, I feel like we have learned that the Russians were really trying to emulate a lot of like French Yes. French life, especially in the 18th century and onward. Uh, we apologize for the sound, by the way. We apparently you have a this. lot of airplanes flying Should over us airplane? at the moment. Yeah, we, but, there's an air show. Oh, yeah, there's an air show in it. Rochester this weekend. Oh, so it just sounds like we're being... We're not under attack. <laughs> under attack. But. It's going to be really fitting in a few minutes. It's oh, okay. going to soundtrack. <laughs> we're going to talk yes. about a couple minutes. Exactly. <laughs> this, this is kismet. I love every part of this. <laughs> Great. Well, we did this for you guys. We arranged it. Thank you. Good budget. Um, yeah. And yeah. So for a while, Catherine was like, we should be like France. We should be like France. Except for the part where you try to overthrow me. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. JK. Never yeah. mind. <laughs> They're wrong. 
forgot we're wrong. They're wrong. Yeah, but that, that's a good segue into our next segment, which is going to be Catherine as enlightened. Jill, would you like to take over? Yeah, so I'm going to take over from here. So Catherine took a lot of her cues from Peter the Great, who modernized or westernized, depending on how you look at it, a lot of the older institutions in Russia. She had a lot of ideas that were really progressive for the time period, including things like inoculations. She was the first Russian ruler to be inoculated against smallpox, and she encouraged others to get it as well. She had her son Paul inoculated against it, and a large reason why she did this was to show people that they shouldn't be afraid of it. Oh, that's cool. Isn't yeah. that cool? She did have her physician like in a like waiting in a cart. Should she die, they could like fly him out of the country so he wouldn't be killed. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so she showed a lot of faith in him. This led to over two million Russians being inoculated against the disease by eighteen hundred, which is pretty amazing for that time period in Russia. Yeah, that's a- were they was it like with a needle and everything? I think so. Oof. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine a needle? Oh, and- just a big ass needle. <laughs> Just in, in 1800s, no penicillin or anything like that. Just going for it. Yeah, they probably just like cauterized with a flame, and Ugh. then just right into your body. The thing about how many people they saved. Yeah, they saved a lot of people. Yeah, so it's worth it. <laughs> so she really wanted to be seen as enlightened, and that she was a ruler who was intelligent and could compete with countries in the West. She admired a lot of Western European intellectuals and wanted Russia to be a player on that stage. One of the intellectual pursuits that she's most famous for is that she had a 15-year correspondence with Voltaire about philosophy and art. Oh, that's cool. Look at her. Yeah, I know. Mm. Mm. Got some extra time. And And they viewed each other as friends. It was a a mutual relationship there of admiration. Um, as a ruler, she spent a lot of time pursuing initiatives and creating institutions that supported the arts, and many of them still exist today in Russia. Susan Jacques, in her biography on Catherine, notes that Catherine called herself a glutton for the art, and this can be seen in her personal collection, which included 4,000 old masters' paintings, including Rembrandt's and Rubens. Mm, that's cool. <sighs> I bet it looked great. It must so be nice cool. to be that wealthy. I know, right? Um, Jacques also pointed out that Catherine employed top art connoisseurs to build her collection, and her collection now serves as the foundation for the Hermitage Museum, which is housed in the former Winter Palace, and it now includes three million pieces of art. Oh, my God. I can't. I just thought of like, oh, I hope it's all cataloged. I was like, oh, oh, my God. I I hope they have a really good software system. Anyway. Nerd. It, it is. It's it's amazing if you Ugh. ever get a chance. It's it's absolutely an incredible collection. Um, one of the things that makes this so interesting is that we see a lot of wealthy mm. modern Russian women doing the same thing today. Mm. So I don't know if you know who Dasha Zhukova is, but she was married to the billionaire Roman Abramovich. He's the guy that owns the Chelsea Football Club and like those giant mega yachts that they're always talking about when they talk about Russian oligarchs yes. owning yeah. much property. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she followed Catherine's model in a way. Um, She's the founder of the Garage Museum of Contemporary Art. And so when she was starting her collection, she would hire experts to tell her what modern art is. Mm -hmm. And then she'd go out and buy those pieces. And so now Russia has a fantastic contemporary art museum because of her. That's very interesting. Cool. Cool. Um, Another thing that made Catherine really interesting is that she believed in education for all people with the exception of serfs. 
1764, one of her education advisors published the general plan for education of young people of both sexes, which Catherine approved of and may have even written some of it. Oh, wow. That's cool. Uh, cool. They, she wrote a lot of things. She was very big on putting her ideas out there for people to see. Mm-hmm. And so the ideas in this work were pretty modern compared to what was the norm in Russia and in the West at this time. It emphasized that children should be educated from 5 to 21 and that the purpose of education was to create better people. It included ideas like education should include physical health, hygiene, and that children learn better when they spend time outdoors. And one of the more interesting parts of the text is that it was against corporal punishment of children in education, which went against a lot of Western ideas about how children learn. That's very interesting. interesting. Yeah, very progressive. Mm. It was really progressive for the time period. She also believed that women had the right to education. So she started many initiatives in St. Petersburg and Moscow in order to provide better educational opportunities for women. She founded the Smolny Institute for Noble Young Ladies, which, despite its name, did admit students who were not nobility, but you did have to be wealthy to go there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she only did so much. <laughs> this is basically a finishing school rather than an intensive learning environment, but it was one of the first schools in all of Russia for women. Wow, that's amazing. And she also invested heavily in the University of Moscow to make it more in line with Western European universities, and it kind of became a, a powerhouse on the university stage at that time oh wow that's cool yeah so now you get into all like the bummer stuff that she did so (laughs) like she did all this great stuff but also kind of things that were really bad so just because she was initially supported by a powerful group of russians when she overthrew her husband does not mean that she was well liked or universally liked during her reign Mm. so even though she had a lot of progressive ideas catherine still had beliefs that hurt a lot of russians particularly those in serfdom Um, She kept the practice going, even though there was support for, you know, eliminating the practice. And she herself owned 500,000 serfs. Oh, my God. That's a half a million. (laughs) That's that's the population of the rest, like the Rochester metro area. That would be like if every single one of us, man, woman and child was was uh, belonged to the mayor. Yeah. Belonged to the mayor. (laughs) And do you want to guess how many serfs were in Russia at this time period? The percentage of oh population. Oh my gosh. The percentage of the population. Oh my god. Ooh. I don't know. Probably like sixty percent of the population uh, was serfs. Yeah, I'm gonna go with. You know what? I'm gonna go up. I'm gonna say seventy-five. So the number that I found is thirty-eight. So I'd always oh. heard. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's I'd, fine. I'd, Sometimes I'd, we try to just <laughs> overshoot. <laughs> I had, yeah, I had actually heard for the longest time that two thirds of Russian Russia's population was in serfdom, but the number that I found at this time period was thirty eight percent. So, oh, okay. If you find anything that's different, I, I would support it. <laughs> um, but what was so bad about it was that she kind of sided with the people who own serfs, and so they were allowed to do things like sentence their serfs to hard labor in Siberia. Ugh. Not good. what kind of labor are they doing in Siberia? You know, what's there? What's what's your hard labor there? Are you just hitting rocks with a pickaxe like in the cartoons? I mean, that's what I imagine. I'm imagining it's mining. Am I? Yeah. 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 I imagine there's <laughs> a right. lot of like important minerals, question mark, in Siberia. And trees. Uh, and okay. trees. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So knocking trees down and all that fun stuff. Huh. Um, so what this means is if it is 38%, it's a large portion of people who have no rights and can't take any steps to better themselves or even defend themselves. Yeah. Mm. Which definitely goes against all those enlightened ideals that she was so proud of. Yeah, exactly. 
When we look at a lot of the initiatives she started, such as her education reforms, we know that they weren't really successful in the long run. SERFs were not included in the education reforms, so we have this giant part of Russia's population receiving no education whatsoever. Mm-hmm. The ones that she did try to enact for people who were poor but were not serfs also didn't work. Um, so she did things like she founded the Moscow Foundling Home, which is an orphanage and educational institution for children of the poor and extramarital affairs. Huh. But, yeah, I like that that was included there. Um, <laughs> but even though that sounds great in practice, the institution had to stop their practices because they had an extremely high mortality rate. Uh-oh. Here it goes. Yeah, it just sounds really terrible. <laughs> Russia continued to have no national school system under her rule. She hired numerous advisors to address this issue, but their initiatives were not well supported, both by the people in official positions or financially by Catherine. So she invested a lot of money in the beginning with these initiatives, but they weren't well sustained. So, for example, teachers were not trained or well paid, which I know you have a hard time imagining today. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus. It's an ongoing thing. Yeah. God hundreds of years yeah we have never been able to get it together Mm -mm. and so while we know that she embraced a lot of the ideals of the enlightenment she didn't embrace all of them or believe that they applied to all people or institutions equally particularly any that criticized her or her reign she initially did favor a free press until it came to ones that published pieces critical of her and then she shut them down oh sure yeah be like, yeah, you can say whatever you want, except you can't say bad stuff about me. <laughs> You're going to die. Is that what happened? Did they die? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's Russia. You should know that. Sorry. Yeah, that's true. I shouldn't, shouldn't be surprised by this. <laughs> um, and so she even created an institute of censorship and then appointed official censor so that the censoring was state controlled. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And so when I was in grad school and I wrote my dissertation, one of the writers that I wrote about was this man named Alexander Rodishev. And he wrote this book called A Journey from St. Petersburg to Moscow. And basically what it is, it's a criticism of the social conditions in Russia under Catherine's reign. She read the book because she was really interested in education and reading and putting the ideas out there. But as you can imagine, she was not really happy with the criticism that he put in there. Mm-hmm. So she was furious. She had him arrested and initially sentenced him to death. Oh my God. Yeah. So he appealed to her and luckily she did reconsider and she forced him into exile and then ordered that all copies of his book be destroyed. Oh, wow. Well, if you read it. it there, there's still some copies. Like, oh, there was okay, a great. number that, that managed to survive, which is really incredible. She's and a time I'm very, traveler. very grateful for it. <laughs> Yes, that's what I went back and I stole him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what this shows us is basically that, you know, even though she was corresponding with some of the most educated minds of her time in the West, in Russia, she was merciless to those who criticized her and she did not demonstrate those enlightened ideals and her own practices. Mm. So for all intents and purposes, on paper, she was like this enlightened, like incredible person. But when it came down to it, she was still a tyrant at the end of the day. Yeah. So during her time on the throne, there were 12 major rebellions against her, the most famous of which is the Pugachev Rebellion from 1773 to 1775. And that's when a pretender to the throne tried to challenge her and was backed by peasants, serfs, and Cossacks. So basically all of the people that she's oppressing. And this was the largest peasant revolt in Russia's history. Wow. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
So as she got older, she had a lot of concerns about turning Russia over to her son, Paul. She saw in him a lot of the same traits that she saw in his father and worried that he was not fit to rule. Mm. She ends up being right about this. (laughs) (laughs) She was 100% accurate. Um, She kept Paul away from the court and she was really concerned about his mental state. And this was something that weighed heavily on her during her final months. There's stories that she may have wanted to turn the throne over to somebody else, but never had enough time to enact that. Now, now, if you know something about Catherine or any of the legends, you might know one famous legend about how she died. Mm-hmm. But, but I've been holding my know? tongue yeah. the whole time. <laughs> what legend is that? The, the legend is that she died having sex with a horse. Oh, yes, of course. I knew about the horse thing, but I didn't know that it, the, the legend was that she her. died. Because she had like a, well, no, I'm hoping this isn't real but that she had like some sort of sling oh she had like an apparatus so that she was like oh could hang out with the horse and then it yeah oh please please Please. Uh, disabuse us of this (laughs) it is just a legend it is not true okay thank you what a mean rumor (laughs) yeah i heard that 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 was a rumor like what is the what is the worst thing we can we can like because yeah. they hated her so much yeah like what is the worst thing we can say about her it was like <laughs> bestiality the last taboo oh my god yeah. <laughs> my mom knew about this legend i was like mom know <laughs> story. very upsetting um so her death is much more mundane than that and they don't actually know how that rumor got started they don't think it started immediately after her death that it oh, okay. came into being sometime later Okay. So on November 16th, 1796, Catherine woke up and planned to spend the morning working. She went to the bathroom to get ready for the day, but did not emerge after 30 minutes. Her maids thought maybe she had gone for a walk without them noticing. However, they quickly realized that none of her clothes were missing. They raised the alarm and they began to look for her. Um, when they got to the bathroom, they found her collapsed on the floor, but breathing. Oh, okay. okay. Now, I don't know why it took them so long to find her in the bathroom, but... <laughs> That's I how, how many the story goes. Had. Big palace. Big palace, Big yeah. palace. So they called the attendants, they move her to her bed, and they call for the royal physician, Dr. Rogerson. He diagnosed her with a stroke with little chance of recovery. She slipped into a coma that day and was given her last rites. She died the next evening at the age of 67, and she remains Russia's longest reigning female ruler. Wow. wow. She was... That was... Um, she was younger than i expected i guess Uh i always thought that she died of old age like she was in her Mm. 70s um but you know who knows what do i I know back then that's you know that back then in russia that probably was like super old super old yeah 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 i guess you're right (laughs) julia's given me the come on come on lauren come on come on it was it was russia during the everyone was living off potatoes yeah that's true everyone had scurvy of some kind or another no one had good teeth no Hemophilia Ugh. everywhere. Ugh. Left, right, and center. Rampant. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that I thought was really interesting when I was researching this is that I kept seeing over and over again in some books and some articles, and I'm not going to give any names here because this is my field of study, um, was this idea that she wasn't very creative or intellectual on her own. Hmm. Oh. I know. And so it was like these things that would say she was very good at listening to the ideas of others and then she would take their lead from them. However, like to me, this seemed really dismissive of her. You know, she learned and became fluent in Russian as a teenager. And both Kat and I can tell you that is not easy. Yeah. 
she was great at reading people and reading situations. She saw the value in the arts and she took steps to bring those things to Russia. And she really, despite all the failures of her education reforms, she did believe that education was the key to improving the lives of the Russian people. Mm -hmm. Um, She also knew who to take advice from and then when not to listen to them. And considering that she was a woman at this time period, saying no to some of the men that she had to engage with probably was a really hard thing to have to do. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so even when she saw her ideas failing, she was willing to try something else. And I thought that was pretty amazing of her. Um, And she was also a master at manipulating public opinion. And when I was researching this, I was like, she would be so good at social media today. She would be just absolutely incredible of it. There's one story that Donald Riley recounts that she was going somewhere and she saw her chief secretary walking down the street in the rain. And so she had 5,000 rubles sent to him so he could buy a carriage and not have to walk home in the rain anymore. And so the story, of course, like spread like wildfire about how generous and wonderful she was. And so she was very much aware of public perception, and she knew how to manipulate that to her advantage. Yeah. So for me, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, it's just, it seems like it would be disingenuous and also very short-sighted to assume that she was just, like, that there were, she was kind of like the puppet for a bunch of puppet master men who she was just good at listening to. Because there's all, obviously, even at the bare minimum, she needed to have had enough discernment and intelligence in her own right to decide who to listen to and also to get where she got like yeah if if it was the best way to to rule a country was to put up a woman as like your figurehead and that was like the most popular thing more countries would have done that yeah (laughs) yeah like it, it she definitely did it on her own yeah it was such a surprise to me to see that like mentioned several times i was like that does that's not what i'm reading when i read your story Mm -hmm. Hmm. so if you're ready, we'll move on to our last badass. Oh, I'm so excited. <gasps> ready? Yes. yes. So for our last badass Russian woman, we're going to jump forward to the 20th century and talk about not just one badass Russian woman, but a group of them known as the Night Witches. I fly like people get high like planes. If you catch me at the border, I got visas in my name. If you come around here, I'll make a more You know the Night Witches? Julia's oh. so excited. I watched the oh. Drunk History Oh, weeks I didn't ago. watch it yet. Oh, okay. it's oh, great. I didn't know Can't wait. I didn't know there was one. Yeah, it was was it this season, I think? It was. Yeah. yeah I haven't watched it. Has season um yet. oh, yeah. It's it's great. It's good. All right. So to set the scene, we're going to go to the Soviet Union during World War II. Starting June of 1941, the Soviet Union was under dire straits because of Operation Barbarossa, which is when the Nazis invaded Russia. The invasion was massive. Over 3 million Germans marched on Russia. And by September of 1941, Leningrad was under siege and would remain so into 1944. It was really bad for the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. As the country was being invaded, a lot of Russians felt helpless and wanted to do something, particularly women. Mm. They wanted to help with the war effort, but like a lot of countries at this time period, they could only serve in support roles. The Soviet women, they were not okay with this, and so they started writing letters, and they wrote to one woman in particular, Marina Raskova. So Marina Raskova was the first female navigator of the Soviet Air Force. And if you read any English language article about her, they're going to call her the Soviet Amelia Earhart because of her long-distance flights. Okay. That's interesting. Every article out there, it's Soviet Amelia Earhart. (laughs) So women all across the Soviet Union wrote to Raskova, telling her they wanted to help the Soviet army. 
And she agreed that women could help with the war effort, and she took it upon herself to write to Stalin directly and tell him that women should be allowed to fight in the war. And shockingly, Stalin agrees. Wow. Yeah. He's like, I mean, everyone else, just, they are out there. <laughs> just go. Just yeah, go. We don't, we don't have very many choices. And so with that, on October 8th, 1941, Stalin gave the orders for three all-female Air Force units. These orders expressly gave them permission to fly mission, drop bombs, and return fire. And with that order, the USSR becomes the first nation to officially allow women to engage in combat. Get yes. the hell out of yes. here. Yes. That is so fling and flang and cool. Isn't oh my God. Awesome? So after Stalin gave permission for the women to engage in combat, they received 2,000 applicants, of which Raskova and her crew selected 400 women who were mostly 17 to 26 years old. So they're very young. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I teach college students. That's that's the age they are. It's incredible to imagine them signing up to go do this with no preparation whatsoever. Yeah. Oh my God. So if you go online, there's a ton of pictures of these women, and they are. They're just so shockingly young. Mm-hmm. So they're quickly sent to the Engels School of Aviation, where they train on an abbreviated schedule because they, they need help. They have to get them out there. During their training, they have to learn all roles. So they receive training as pilots, navigators, maintenance, and ground crew. Oh, my God. Once, yeah, everything. They have to learn all the roles. They're not really sure where they're going to be placed. Yeah. Once they receive their training, they're set off to fight, and they become the 588th Night Bomber Regiment. The Night Bombers. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, So they complete their training. They're sent off to war, and they quickly learn that even though the Soviet Union is under siege by the Nazis, their male counterparts do not want them there, and the government didn't actually have the means to support them. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. They get out to the front and they're greeted by horrific sexism from their fellow soldiers and they get all of the worst possible supplies and conditions. Yeah, their planes are like falling apart. Oh, yes, we're going to get to that. Their planes are basically paper airplanes. Oh, my God. So the uniforms that they're given are men's uniforms that have not been altered to fit them. (laughs) Oh, I remember a few minutes ago I said they're teenagers. They're 17. They're not shaped like grown men in the army so they have to resort to things like cutting up their bedding and shoving the stuffing from the bedding into their boots to make their boots fit oh oh poor honeys (laughs) (laughs) and and some of them like could sew and they would sew alterations to their uniforms to make them actually fit them they're also not allowed to have guns because those are reserved for the men right okay you can fly this plane but yeah, let the, let the big strong men carry around the gun. All <laughs> yeah, right, honey. Okay. okay. Yeah. They're also not allowed to have radios, parachutes, or radars. So anything you need to survive is off limits to them and has to go to the men. Oh my god! I think it was something like it was going to be too like first they didn't have the equipment for them, and then second it would have been like too heavy for the plane or something mm-hmm. to that effect too. Like the planes were. So oh crappy gosh. that they couldn't have all this extra weight. <laughs> so they're, they're flying tiny teenagers with just maps. <laughs> and pencils. Like they yeah. legitimately got pencils to figure out the maps while they were flying. Oh my God. These poor girls. They were like, what did I sign up for? <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. Are you, are you ready to talk about the planes? Because they're also. Yes. <laughs> so the Air Force didn't actually have enough planes for the women. So they were given outdated planes that were supposed to be used for practice and crop dusting. <laughs> um, they were made out of plywood and canvas and were open to the elements, which is 
It's awful for many reasons, but I'm going to give you three. So first, they're made of plywood, like actually made of plywood. So they have no protection from enemy fire. And if the planes caught fire and then caught on fire, they were screwed because the planes were very flammable. Oh, no. No, Uh, Nadezhda Popova, who is one of the most famous night witches, recalled landing after one mission only to discover that her plane had been shot through 42 times. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (gasps) So second, they were open to the elements, which means that in the winter, they had not only no protection from enemy fire, they had no protection from the weather. As both Napoleon and Hitler can tell you, Russia in the winter is no joke. Oh, my God. (laughs) So no. It's an unimaginable cold, and they would say that if they touched the plane with bare hands in the winter, their skin would rip from their bodies. Oh, I know. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. That's it. That's Your it. broker. I'm done. I'm sorry. No, and please. Then, <laughs> and there's one more, as Julia pointed out, because they're made of plywood and canvas, they're not actually meant to carry bombs. So the, the most that they could handle were two bombs at one time, which means that these women had to run as many as 18 missions per night. Oh, my God. They were, and like, up all night. Yeah, that was the number that kind of, like, threw me. I'm like, 18 missions per <sighs> night. Oh, my God. And so this general awful condition of the plane was why they had to fly at night, because they weren't safe enough to fly during the day. They needed that night for cover. Wow. Oh, my God. So now that you know about these horrific conditions, you can pretty much assume that these women were meant to be cannon fodder. And that's probably what Stalin and his people were thinking. Maybe Ugh. we could have bombs and bullets used on them. We can save some of the bigger, stronger army people in other places. But they were not cannon fodder. What they do is actually pretty incredible. Under the leadership of Major Bershinskaya, the regiment starts flying their missions, and they quickly learn what the planes can and cannot do. And again, if you're flying what is pretty much a paper airplane, you have to learn what to do in order to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And so they discover that the planes have three significant advantages over the newer German planes. So one, they're highly maneuverable, which means that they could take off and land more easily than the newer German planes. Two, their plane's maximum speed was significantly lower than the German plane's stall speed. And this is what makes it hard for the German planes to shoot them down. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Jeez. And then three, the planes were so small they couldn't be picked up by German radio. Oh. oh <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Clever. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So they, when they learn these three things, they start to apply them to their bombing strategy. And this is how it would work. There would be three planes at once. Each one was loaded with two bombs and two women. So your pilot and your navigator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they would set off on a single mission. Two of the planes would act as decoys, and they would lead the German planes away. And then the third one would fly close to the bombing target. When it got within range, the pilot would shut down the plane's engine so that the plane would glide rather than fly over the target. Oh, my gosh. And then they would drop the bombs. The planes would then switch positions, and they would do it all over again two more times. And again, each one of them flew 8 to 18 missions per plane per night. Oh, my God. These girls just way braver than I could have ever been at 17 what what was I doing at 17 not that what nope and this is where the nickname night witches comes from the Germans gave them that nickname because when the planes would glide rather than fly it would make a whizzing sound and they believed that that was what a witch on a broom sounded like at night 
Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. That's so freaking it, cool. <laughs> it, was, it was meant to be an insult, but they loved, loved it. it. And oh, they yeah. Rolled with it. They're like, yes, that's right. We are the Night Witches. That's really cool. And so the bombing strategy ended up being really successful to the point that the Germans believed that these women had to be master criminals recruited by the Soviet army or that they were basically super soldiers who were given injections that gave them night vision. <laughs> I love this. Night it's vision like, injections. These have to be superhuman. very yeah. good women. Nope. Nope. Just teens. Just <laughs> teens have been sneaking cigarettes since the age of 14. <laughs> Who've been injected. Yes. No smallpox here. <laughs> There's a lot, of, a lot of inoculation in this. Yeah. Episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, supposedly if you shot down a night witch, you were automatically awarded an iron cross. I've seen that in a couple articles, but I haven't found any legitimate sources that back that claim up, but they were feared. And so if you look at the record of the night witches, what they accomplish is staggering given the conditions that they flew under. They took out 26 warehouses, 176 armored cars, 12 fuel stations, and 17 river crossing points. They also performed 155 food drops for the Soviet army. Oh my wow. God. That's wild? incredible. Yeah. In total, girls. yeah. In total, they dropped 23,000 tons of munitions and flew approximately 30,000 missions in four years. That's, That's 800 amazing. flights per woman. Oh mm. my God. I don't that even like to fly commercial. <laughs> I'm like, I, I get, I have to take a Xanax before getting on a commercial flight. These girls are basically on like, like lawn furniture with with <laughs> wings, <laughs> throwing throwing bombs, bombs with their bare hands in the dark, in the dark and the cold. Oh my god! While wearing men's boots, while wearing men's boots that they stuffed with l- sheets. Oh, this is amazing! I, it's just brutal. And what makes it really incredible is that just thirty-two out of four hundred of the night witches died in combat. Oh my God, that's a very high success rate. That's an extremely yeah. high success rate. And so this number, unfortunately, includes Marina Raskova. She never made it to the front line. She was killed before then. Mm-hmm. Um, by their last mission on May 4th, 1945, they were within 37 miles of Berlin. Oh my God. Holy cow. So they it's, weren't just cannon fodder. <laughs> no, they showed that they weren't. That's amazing. Um, we're going to talk about the sad part now is that unfortunately history pretty much forgot about the night witches almost immediately after the war. Mm. The unit was disbanded within six months. 23 of them did receive the honor of hero of the Soviet Union, but they were not allowed to participate in the Victory Day celebration because their planes were too slow. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> like the very planes the that very- they were given. <laughs> The very planes they were given that caused them so much victory, they weren't allowed to celebrate in the victory parade. That's amazing. I'm, I'm, Can you imagine how mad they must have been? Oh, oh my, my God, God. So mad. <laughs> I hope they went and stole a couple of like, the I, good yeah, planes. Me too. <laughs> um, some of the night witches were arrested during Stalin's purges. Sofia Zerkova, who was a senior engineer in the night bombing regiment, was arrested in 1942 and sentenced to death. <gasps> but she was later rehabilitated and allowed to go free. Several others were arrested, but largely they kind of were just forgotten. They they weren't um, eliminated in Stalin's purges. Ugh. Can you imagine like 
you know, 60 years later, they're talking, they're finally like able to talk to their grandchildren about it or something. Yeah. They're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. Grandma was a badass. (laughs) Um, one of the nice things is there has been a lot of new interest in the Night Witches in the past decade, especially in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, Nadezhda Popova died on July 14th, 2013 at the age of 91. She's the one that flew over 18 missions in one night. And the New York Times wrote an article about her. And I think that's kind of what sparked this renewed mm. interest in the Night Witches. I see. Um, yeah, I think I think that's where it comes from because around her death, all of a sudden, all these things about the Night Witches start popping up. Mm-hmm. There's now a ton of fiction and nonfiction books about them, and I feel like whenever I go online, um, there's a new graphic novel or a kids' <laughs> book about them. Um, so at least they're getting the recognition that they deserve for being these incredible badass women. That's that's amazing. amazing. That's so cool. It's, awesome. Yeah, it's such a great story. Yeah, I I love them. I just think they're so awesome. That's cool. Wow. Wow. My my <laughs> Polish and Ukrainian blood is pulsing. Coursing. And I'm filled with the spirit of Russia. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, too. Cannot, <laughs> you cannot relate. I cannot relate. Nope. <laughs> but I, too, am sharing in this. That was awesome. Thank, Thank you, Kat you. and Jill. Oh, that my gosh. Great. I learned so much. It's so much, I think it's just so much fun to talk about. There's like all these wild stories. Yeah. And we don't hear a lot about Russian literature, Russian history um, in the U.S. Not very much because Mm -hmm. of the Cold War and all of that stuff. But this is, yeah, it's really interesting. Cool. So I hear you guys have a quiz for us. We do. Guilty is charged. Yes, we do. (laughs) Well, we're looking forward to it. It's going to be a quiz about some more Russian badass women and things tangentially related to them. Question one. We started this episode with the OG Russian badass woman, St. Olga of Kiev, but we want to ask you about a slightly more contemporary badass who shares her name. This Belarusian gymnast was widely credited for redefining the sport, focusing more on acrobatic technique than artistic elegance. She must have been onto something since she won four gold medals and two silver medals for the USSR in the 1972 and 1976 Olympic Games. Who was this powerhouse nicknamed the Sparrow of Minsk? Question two. Speaking of women making incredibly difficult athletic performances look easy as pie, way back in episode 105, Julia talked about the history of ballet and probably mentioned a famous Russian ballerina who inspired a delicious dessert consisting of meringue with a crisp crust and usually topped with fruit and whipped cream. Stretch your mental muscles and reach back in your brain and tell us the name of this dessert. Question three. Vengeance is mine, I shall repay, is the epigraph to Leo Tolstoy's novel Anna Karenina. Trains play a fairly central role in the novel and in Russian history and culture as a whole. The Trans-Siberian Railway is the world's longest railroad, and within Russia's borders, it runs between Moscow in the west and Vladivostok in the east. Within 200 miles, as the sparrow flies, how long is the route? Question four. The Russian monarchy came to an end in 1917 when Tsar Nicholas II abdicated and was subsequently murdered with the rest of his family in July of 1918. However, there are many Romanov pretenders, including the famous Anna Anderson, whose story has been fictionalized in the 1997 animated movie and a current Broadway musical called Anastasia. 
For most of her life, Anna Anderson lived in the U.S. university town named after an actual English princess. While she's not buried there, you can find a headstone with her name on it in the university cemetery. What is the name of this town? And for a bonus point, which actress voiced Anna Anderson in the animated movie? Question five. The Russians have historically dominated figure skating at the international level, especially in the Olympic pairs competition. However, only one pair has won Olympic gold under both the USSR and the Russian Federation, which they did first in 1988 and then in 1994. Name this alliteratively surnamed duo. Question six. Catherine the Great was ordained into the Russian Orthodox Church as an Empress of Russia in 1762. Almost 200 years later, the Soviet space program became the first to successfully land a lunar impacting space probe. We have no idea if the scientists behind that mission ever saw the 1984 film The Neverending Story, but if they had, they'd almost certainly have approved of the name that Bastion gave the Empress to save her life. What was that name? Question 7. A few years after that lunar space probe's success in 1963, the Soviets launched the Vostok 6 capsule, which had the honor of carrying the first woman to go to space. What was this lovely cosmonaut's name? Question 8. Speaking of Russian women who can fly, the night witches are not the only famous Russian witches. What is the name of the famous fairy tale Russian witch who lived deep in the woods in a house on chicken legs and who's also known for her nighttime flights? Question 9. Speaking of women in Russian literature, Svetlana Alexievich is Belarusian, but she writes in the Russian language. In 2015, she won the Nobel Prize in Literature for her achievements in journalism and oral history that strove to build a monument to suffering and courage in our time. While no female Russian writers have yet won the Nobel in literature, four male Russian writers have. Can you name two of them? Question 10. Speaking of the border that Russia shares with Belarus, we were kind of casting about for a final question when we came across this juicy tidbit of pop culture news. HBO very recently announced its plan for a miniseries about Catherine the Great, creatively titled Catherine the Great. Playing the titular role is an actress whose father was born in the western region of Smolensk, near the Belarusian border, who might be most famous for her Oscar-nominated turns on screen portraying British royalty. However, in what could not be a mere coincidental timing with the recording of this episode, a French film by the name of Anna was released this summer, co-starring this actress as a KGB spy handler who was named Olga. Who is this multifaceted tour de force? We'll give you about a minute to think, and then we'll be back with your answers. Thank you. 
Okay. I think I'm feeling pretty good. Okay. All right. Feeling good? Yeah. We, we feel okay. Okay. Yeah. Lay it on us. All right. Question one. We started this episode with the OG Russian badass woman, St. Olga of Kiev, but we want to ask you about a slightly more contemporary badass who shares her name. This Belarusian gymnast was widely credited for redefining the sport, focusing more on acrobatic technique than artistic elegance. She must have been onto something since she won four gold medals and two silver medals for the USSR in the 1972 and 1976 Olympic Games. Who was this powerhouse nicknamed the Sparrow of Minsk? Is that Olga Korbu? Yes, it is Olga Corbett. Yeah, Corbett. Corbett. Corbett, sorry, my fr- oh, I'm <laughs> speaking French. <laughs> <She's a> French. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's Olga Corbett. Um, in a Peanuts Peanuts comic strip published on May fifteenth, nineteen seventy three, Snoopy is seen doing balance beam positions with flawless precision on top of his doghouse for three panels until he comes to rest in the fourth one, saying, "Olga Corbett has been bugging me for lessons." <laughs> oh, that's, that's really sweet. sweet. We don't talk about Snoopy enough. I know we really don't. <laughs> All right. Two, speaking of women making incredibly difficult athletic performances look easy as pie, way back in episode 105, Julia talked about the history of ballet and probably mentioned a famous Russian ballerina who inspired a delicious dessert consisting of meringue with a crisp crust, usually topped with fruit and whipped cream. Stretch your mental muscles and reach back in your brain to tell us the name of this dessert. Uh, That is a pavlova. Yes. It's yes. so delicious. Mm. I was listening to your dessert episode. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> this comes out in September. That's plenty of yeah, time you're for fine. people to forget. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good. Uh, so the dish was named after Anna Pavlova, and it was believed to have been created in her honor after she toured Australia and New Zealand. On a sad for her note, she probably did not ever have the dessert because the ballerinas weren't allowed to even look at sugar back then, much less consume it. Um, also, she had weak ankles. She had those weak <laughs> Bird bone <laughs> ankles just snap as soon as you look at them. It's terrible. This is the one thing that she and I have in common, let me tell you. <laughs> Sorry. Poorly you mean you don't have a dessert named after you? Not yet. <laughs> All right. Question three. Vengeance is mine. I shall repay is the epigraph to Leo Tolstoy's novel Anna Karenina. Trains play a fairly central role in the novel and in Russian history and culture as a whole. The Trans-Siberian Railway is the world's longest railroad, and within Russia's borders, it runs between Moscow in the west and Vladivostok in the east. Within 200 miles, as the sparrow flies, how long is the route? All right, so I play Ticket to Ride a lot, and Um, the European version of Ticket to Ride does include these cities that you've mentioned. uh, the problem is, is Russia is very big. Russia is very big. Russia is very big. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had to, if I had to make a guess, and I think you should because you're very good at sometimes just pulling I'm a really number. good at just like pulling a number out of my ass. Um, at, within 200, I would say 4,700 miles. Great. Not quite. Uh, um, if you'd gone up a thousand miles, you'd be there. It's. 5,772 miles long. Wow. Oh, my God. That's very long. That's, that's a very long train ride, that's a y'all. a big country. <laughs> yeah. But the, the crazy thing is that these days you can do that train trip in just one week. Like, if you don't get off anywhere and look around, if you just stay on the train, you can do it in seven days. Wow. That's really amazing. That's fast. Yeah. Have you yeah. done that? No, it's my train no. trip. Oh, my gosh. No. That's, it's on the bucket list because when I was there, I just didn't. It, 
I didn't make time to do it. Um, well, it takes but, a week. <laughs> a week to go in each direction. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I lived there for a year, so I had a lot of time. Oh, wow. I just didn't think to have that much time. Um, but yeah, we should know that the railway does have actually two longer routes. One that runs from Moscow to Beijing by way of Harbin and Manchuria, and one that runs from Moscow to Beijing by way of Mongolia. So I think if I do go back and do it, I'm going to go that way. Oh, that very cool. So cool. Oh my gosh. Ugh. I have friends who have done it, and they've said it's like just incredible. Man, send us pictures when it's you like do. a thing we didn't know we needed to put on our bucket list. Yeah, I had uh, wouldn't have never occurred to me. Amazing. All right. Question four. The Russian monarchy came to an end in 1917 when Tsar Nicholas II abdicated and was subsequently murdered with the rest of his family in July of 1918. However, there were many Romanov pretenders, including the famous Anna Anderson, whose story has been fictionalized in a 1997 animated movie and a current Broadway musical called Anastasia. For most of her life, Anna Anderson lived in the U.S. university town named after an actual English princess. While she's not buried there, you can find a headstone with her name on it in the university cemetery. What is the name of this town? And for the bonus point, which actress voiced Anna Anderson in the animated movie? I had a guest just come to me. Oh, please. For the town. Go ahead. Because you know the person. I know the person. But yeah, you know the town. How about Charlotte? Ooh. Oh, yeah. That's good. Okay. Charlotte. 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 Is it Charlotte? And, oh, and the person who voiced uh, Anastasia was Meg Ryan. All right. So you're right on the bonus point. <laughs> okay. Damn it. And you're so, so close on the town. It's Charlottesville. Oh. Charlottesville, Virginia. Oh. oh. Close. Should have known. <laughs> yeah. So we wrote that because that's actually where we did our PhD together, Charlottesville, Virginia at UVA. And... We've definitely been to the cemetery. I used to give cemetery tours for a class on Russian folklore and point her tombstone out. Oh, very cool. How fun. You guys seem to have had a cool grad experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you see the fear in her eye? Yeah. <laughs> We, we can laugh about it now. <laughs> I think they both like had a brief flashback and then came to and they were like, uh. oh. <laughs> I mean, no one would say grad school was one easy or two. You know, the first word would not be fun, but I did love grad school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I learned a lot. So I imagine you guys also got a lot out of it. But yeah, absolutely. And I met her, which is pretty pretty good yeah oh best friends (laughs) 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 that's how me that's how i am all right question five the russians have historically dominated figure skating at the international level especially in the olympic pairs competition however only one pair has won olympic gold under both the ussr and the russian federation which they did first in 1988 and then in 1994 Name this alliteratively surnamed duo. The only thing I could think of, and it just hit me, I actually had to like cover my mouth to prevent myself from bursting out <laughs> laughing, was Leopold and Loeb, which is not... <laughs> no. Which is not even close, no, so they don't said take no. that They answer. already said no. Yeah, that, they don't, already don't said take no to that. that. Um, let's see. Skating. I was definitely way more into gymnastics than I was like... Into figure skating. Into like figure skating. Yeah, for sure. So my knowledge there is not. Mm. We should probably do a figure skating episode. I know. It's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot. Yeah. Okay. What's a good 
Russian last name. Uh, mm, last name? Yeah. Uh, uh, Barishnikov. Has it ended like Skaya? Oh, uh, Moliskina. <laughs> we're not gonna get this. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, we're not gonna we get We don't this. know. We're gonna embarrass ourselves. How about you just, we're gonna give it up. What is it? Okay. Okay. Uh, so, you you may remember them from the from the nineties. It was Yekaterina Gordeva. And her <laughs> partner's name was Remember? She cried about him. Remember? Yes, remember? You he talked died. about them. He died. He it died was sad. Alexi. Alexi. Go. <laughs> she's gonna have a she's gonna have an aneurysm. Some, uh, Katerina Gordieva and Alexi. <laughs> Girl. <laughs> Please put her out of her misery. Are you? Do you want to give it up? What, what is, is it? it? Embrace the bear. Grinkov. Sergey Grinkov. Sergey Grinkov. Yeah, you talked about this oh. very briefly, I think, and you had Sergei. a question. Remember? Yes. Oh, oh, oh sweet Sergey. Oh. Oh, fuck. Sorry. <laughs> I wish I could help you. <laughs> Sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it was really sad when he like collapsed and died because he had a heart attack when he was 28 during a practice session with her. Mm, so sad. So yeah. I've act- I'm a huge figure skating nerd. It's one of the reasons I studied Russian. And so I ran these questions by my mom two nights ago. She got this one wrong. I'm like, you've met this woman. <gasps> wow. Oh my god. <laughs> like we've seen her kids. <laughs> She's like, oh. Oh my gosh. That's very cool. That is wow. Cool. Such a tragedy. Your mom met her. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but didn't didn't remember like none of the dates triggered anything with the fact that y- you and I wrote these questions. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like a random trivia question I came across. I was like, it's someone you've met. <laughs> <laughs> didn't ring a bell. Didn't ring a bell. Nothing. All right. Question number six. Catherine the Great was ordained into the Russian Orthodox Church as the Empress of Russia in 1762. Almost 200 years later, the Soviet space program became the first to successfully launch a lunar impacting space probe. We have no idea if the scientists behind that mission ever saw the 1984 film The NeverEnding Story, but if they had, they'd almost certainly have approved of the name that Bastion gave to the Empress to save her life. What is that name? It's all Lauren. It's all Lauren. I know this. It's is it Moonchild? It is. Yes. (laughs) I know. Because go ahead. That movie was too scary. Yeah, too scary for Julia. Too long. It was like it was never ending. (laughs) (laughs) It's. I think it's just a normal like you know a little under two hours. When I was five, it was like torture. Well, you. I. I feel like (laughs) you saw it too young. Like, you need to have had seen it, like, between, like, 9 and 12. Okay. That's, like, the perfect time to see NeverEnding Story when you've been reading a lot of, like, folklore books and you want to watch a sad story. You want to watch a story that has, like, a sad ending when you're just getting into, like, your weird goth phase, preteen goth phase, <laughs> which is when I saw it. Yeah, all the emotions. Um, and at the end of the movie, Sebastian, like, like, crawls up to the and he opens up the window and he screams into the the storm and i remember my sister and i looking at each other and going what did he just say like we couldn't it's never mentioned again and it was like the the name of his mother 
Uh, and his mother's name apparently was Moonchild. Because I remember I Googled it years later. I was like, oh. what does this even mean? Like, I didn't even know what name he screamed into the night sky. Um, but yeah, Moonchild. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. Great job. Yeah. Good pull. Thanks. Well done. Question seven. A few years after that lunar space probe's success in 1963, the Soviets launched the Vostok 6 capsule, which had the honor of carrying the first woman to go to space. What was this lovely cosmonaut's name? She was Valentina Tereshkova. Yes, she certainly was. Nice. Good job, Jewel. Yeah. <laughs> Got my hint about her being lovely. Mm, that was very mm-hmm. good. That was a good hint. <laughs> Fun fact, before she became a cosmonaut, she worked in a textile factory and was an amateur skydiver. These days, she is a deputy in the Duma, which is Russia's state legislative body. Oh, hey. I also read something like she like volunteered that if they ever wanted to send people to Mars, that she would go. Yeah. You know? She definitely seems like that. People who skydive, they don't care about their lives. <laughs> so she's like, yeah, I'll go to Mars. Pfft, whatever. I'll die there. I don't care. <laughs> Are you a skydiver? I, no, the two times I went was when I was in grad school because I may have subconsciously actively wanted to kill myself. <laughs> Be like, if I die on this, maybe I don't have to finish my dissertation. I don't have to take comps if comps. I don't come back to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been there. Oh, makes you fatal. <laughs> All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Number eight. Speaking of Russian women who can fly, the night witches are not the only famous Russian witches. What is the name of the famous fairy tale Russian witch who lives deep in the woods in a house on chicken legs and who is known for her nighttime flights? That is the Baba Yaga. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love the Baba Yaga. Didn't the didn't the toast or the, it was the hairpin maybe did like an ongoing um, column written by Baba Yaga? Oh yeah, I think it was yes. the toast. Yeah. There's now, um, like, she has her own advice book now. <laughs> That's great. You know what? If I, I would definitely take love advice from the Baba Yaga. She's got it all figured out. Um, I watched, um, there was, uh, I, Steve and I watched Riff Tracks, which is like, you know, they riff on old movies and things. And there's a, there's this whole series of Russian movies that are like children's fairy tale movies. Yeah. Um, by a certain director, and I forgot his name, but they're like really kind of weirdly beautiful, and they use like puppets and like, and it's like from the fifties and sixties. They're like really Technicolor and stuff. And in one of the movies we watched, one of the characters was Baba Yaga. <laughs> it was kind of cool, and they ha- she had like the chicken leg house. It was wild. Yes. Yeah, those are those are super famous. I think you know if you have to take a Russian one hundred and one or Russian like two hundred level course, like you're going to watch those cartoons. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Question nine. Speaking of women in Russian literature, Svetlana Alexievich is Belarusian, but she writes in the Russian language. In 2015, she won the Nobel Prize in Literature for her achievements in journalism and oral history that strove to build a monument to suffering and courage in our time. While no female Russian writers have yet won the Nobel in Literature, four male Russian writers have. Can you name two of them? All right. So the Nobel Prizes were founded at the end of the 19th century. Okay. So... So there's people you can cut out from based on that, I think. <laughs> I mean, sure. Uh, Tolstoy? Tolstoy? Um, uh, who was Crime and Punishment? Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, who's some other names? Did Alexander Pushkin win a Nobel Prize? Uh, no. 
Was he's he dead? too early. Yeah. Okay. Great. I would have mentioned it, I think. <laughs> I would have mentioned it. Um, who else? Who's who Russian? Else is who Russian? is Russian? Hmm. Male Russian. Uh, who did War and Peace? Was Tolstoy. Tolstoy. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we thought of it, too. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm missing a Russian author that, like, everyone knows. Maybe Besides, think like 20th century. Oh, Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, 20th century Russian <laughs> male authors. Whew. They include... <sighs> Nabokov? Ooh. Does he count? That's a good guess, I think. Yeah, great. He's Russian, Good right? guess. Sounds he is Vladimir yeah. Nabokov. Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. All right, yeah, Vladimir, you're right. Um, yeah, I'll go with Tolstoy and Nabokov. <laughs> Does the name Laura ring any bells? Laura. Character named Laura. Uh, does, should it? <laughs> she, she, she loved the doctor. She loved the doctor. Is this like a Dr. Zhivago thing? Oh, fuck. Yeah. Who did that? Oh, Who did that, Lauren? I don't know. Um, David M. 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 Malayevich. Malakovich. Malayevich? Who's Malayevich? Who, where did that come from? <laughs> that's he an painted artist. The black, yeah, he painted the black square. Black square. That's why I'm thinking. Uh, <laughs> Molotov. Nope, that's a cocktail. That's a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> but don't drink it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I'm on the... Okay, what is it? Tell us. Okay, so the, the, the name that you were looking for um, was Boris Pasternak. Pasternak. Dr. Zhivago. Not oh. the letter M at all. No, nope. I wouldn't have gotten there. No. No. Yeah. Huh. But there is, there is an M in one of these answers. <laughs> so the four, the four men, the first one was Ivan Bunin in 1933. Okay. Um, He's he's not really one that most people have heard of, but he wrote a really cool short story called The Gentleman from San Francisco. Um, Pasternak won it next in 1958. And then in 1965, after that was your M, Mikhail Sholokhov, who was best known for the novel And Quiet Flows the Dawn, which mm. is really great bedtime reading um, <laughs> if you've ever needed something to fall asleep to. I had to do a project where I was looking through different versions of it in Russian on microfilm, and I thought that I was going to go postal. It was just <laughs> it's like, this is what you use to punish someone that you're mad at. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was prize process. winning. <laughs> yeah, because that wasn't bad enough. Um, and then the fourth guy in 1970 was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote The Cancer Ward, The Gulag Archipelago, and then Gulag probably most famous for One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. So if you guys That's were wondering it. what you do in Siberian Exile... There's your tutorial on how awful it is. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. All right, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, it's that's actually it's probably one of my favorite books, which sounds really messed up, but just it's really well written. Um, but Pasternak famously was forced by Soviet authorities to decline acceptance of his Nobel Prize for Doctor mm. Zhivago because they said it was too critical of the Soviet Union. And in 2014, the CIA released hundreds of pages of documents confirming what some had suspected all along, which is that the CIA and MI6 had indeed conspired for years to submit the novel to the Nobel Committee so that they would give Pasternak the award and discredit the Soviet Union. Oh, wow. 
That's Man, a good they con. were working from all angles. You know? <laughs> Just <laughs> Yeah. For once the conspiracy is true. <laughs> <laughs> all right, ready for the last one? Yes. Yeah. All right. Speaking of the border that Russia shares with Belarus, we were kind of casting about for a final question when we came across this juicy tidbit of pop culture news. HBO very recently announced its plans for a miniseries about Catherine the Great, creatively titled Catherine the Great. Playing the titular role is an actress whose father was born in the western region of Smolensk near the Belarusian border who might be most famous for her Oscar-nominated turn on screen portraying British royalty. However, in what cannot be mere coincidental timing with the recording of this episode, a French film by the name of Anna was released earlier this summer, co-starring this actress as a KGB spy handler who is named Olga. Who is this multifaceted tour de force? I feel like she put a lot of clues in there. Yes, I (laughs) I have a guess. Okay, Oscar nominated for portraying British royalty. So, Oscar nominated for portraying British royalty. You've got Dame Judi Dench. Uh-huh. You've got... Um, uh, Kate what? Blanchett. Kate but Blanchett. she won, right? She won, and she's Australian. But also Judi Dench won. Yeah, Judi Dench also won. Okay. Um, you also have Helen Mirren. <gasps> I bet it's Helen Mirren. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, because her thinking. real name is like a... Yeah. Real... Marinskovich. Yes. <gasps> That's a good, good one. I should have guessed that earlier. Um, is it <laughs> Helen Mirren? It is. Yes. Good job. Boom. <laughs> so she was born Helen Lydia Mirinoff. Mirinoff. I was close. Good job. Nice. Wow. Great quiz. That was great. Oh. This episode was wonderful. I'm, I'm going to pre, you know, I'm I should have warned everybody at the beginning that, you know, it was going to be wonderful. But well, at I the end, it was wonderful. Questions. Fabulous. Fabulous. Great to have the both of you on. Thank you so much. Um, do either of you have anything to plug before we start in on our, uh, on our no, closer? No, I so wish I did. <laughs> Kat, do you have yeah. anything to plug? No, I don't. Um, I did. <laughs> I just totally am. Nope. Not thinking of it. You, you don't have a SoundCloud or like a Patreon or anything. <laughs> They're actually SoundCloud rappers. Yeah. We should be so grateful that we don't. We're going to link to their (laughs) mixtape. So thank you so much to Kat and Jill for doing all of that research and giving us that incredible quiz. Um, If uh, you would like to reach out to us to thank them and tell them uh, or us any more information about, mm, I don't know, Russian literature or just lady badasses, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at misinfopod. You can go to our Facebook page, Misinformation, colon, a trivia podcast. And you can also head to our website, www.misinfopod.com. You can stream us on our website and find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend. Uh, and uh, this concludes, I believe, our guest timber. Buona, yeah. buona, buona. Which is the shortened version of my of my incredible trombone oh. impression. It just keep the horn just keeps changing. Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks again to Kat and Jill, and thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Dairy. <laughs> <laughs>